The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Hello again, and welcome to the 12th episode of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, 27th of May, and today is a special episode. Exceptionally, we will delve into three instead of two of the most discussed topics and news of the week. On the other hand, this week we won't discuss the main news of the past week. We will therefore talk about the Russian fake news and propaganda about the war in Ukraine, a possible global food crisis linked to the conflict in Eastern Europe, and the general election result in Australia. The war in Ukraine is spawning a lot of fake news, some spread directly by the Kremlin's propaganda machine. The first three of today's editorials focus on the issue of fake news and propaganda, domestic and foreign, of the Russian government. We begin with the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. In their article, economists Tito Boeri and Roberto Perotti refute the fake news that the US and UK are prolonging hostilities in Ukraine for economic gain. According to a Center for Economic Policy reform paper, Ukraine's reconstruction will require between $200 billion and $500 billion, spread over at least five years, the economists explain. Let's assume that US companies get 30% of the orders, $40 billion a year, the columnist's reasoning continues. Exaggerating the profit US companies would make and assuming it is $20 billion a year, eventually US earnings would amount to 0.1% of GDP and 1% of total corporate profits. Does anyone really think that the US government risks a nuclear war and delays the end of hostilities for such small figures? Asked Boeri and Perotti. Arguing that the US war industry profits from war does not seem to be a valid argument either. Again, the amounts spent on military aid are uncomparable to annual US military spending. In conclusion, the article says the economic point that the US would like to prolong the war are factually false. For the second editorial, we cross the English Channel and go to the UK, reading the Financial Times. Journalist Gideon Rachman analyzes the difference between the West's hypocrisy and the lies spread by the Russian government. For Rachman, Putin is obsessed with Western hypocrisy, which he calls the empire of lies. But if the Western speciality is hypocrisy, the Russian speciality is lies. Yet hypocrisy and lying are not the same thing, the journalist argues. Instead, the characteristic vice of the West is to advocate a policy and then apply it inconsistently, Rachman writes. Why then prefer hypocrisy to lies? With hypocrisy, open debate and criticism are still possible. Errors and crimes can be pointed out either by official investigations or by a free press, the columnist notes. While on the other hand, under the Russian government, anyone who tries to expose state crimes is killed or arrested. If Putin's system rests on lies and repression, on the other hand, notwithstanding the accusations of hypocrisy, the United States is still a free country. Freedom of speech is so entrenched in the US that even a re-elected Trump could not insist, as Putin does, that every citizen of his country must endorse his lie or face imprisonment. The conclusions read. In the latest editorial on this topic, we move to the United States. In the New York Times, 
Journalist Farida Rusamova uses a psychiatric metaphor to define the order of power in Putin's Russia. Just as the KGB used psychotherapy and psychiatric hospitals as a coercive and punitive system for dissidents, Putin also uses the same system to maintain his rule. In a state of anesthetized apathy and drugged-up distemper, the bulk of Russian society has quietly acceded to Mr. Putin's rule and to his brutal war in Ukraine. Rusamova notes, For Putin, Russian citizens are his property. From time to time he feeds them, the journalist writes, referring to the meager economic aid distributed before the elections so as to ensure support and turnout. In fact, Russians' economic conditions are not improving. In 2019, 15% of Russians lived in poverty, while another 49% were barely over the poverty threshold. So it is understandable that, in this situation, people think first of all about getting through the day, remaining indifferent or resigned towards politics. In Russia, it is said that half the country is in jail and half the country are the guards. The guards in this case are government officials who are also closely controlled by the government. What can be said unequivocally is that Russian society, after so many years of Mr. Putin's punitive psychiatry, will need a very long rehabilitation, Rusamova says. The second series of editorials of the day focuses instead on another issue related to the Ukrainian conflict, a possible global food crisis. Since the beginning of the war, the Ukrainian port of Odessa has been blocked by both Russian ships and sea mines, used by Kiev's army to prevent the Kremlin's fleet from approaching. The port of Odessa is one of the main points from which exports of wheat grown in Ukraine depart. Ukraine, along with Russia, is among the world's leading wheat exporters. Together, they cover one-third of total exports. The first commentary we read through can be found in the French newspaper Le Monde. For columnist Stéphane Lauer, protectionist policies adopted by some countries can only exacerbate the current food crisis. According to data from the Food and Agriculture Organization, food prices have risen 30% in one year, while export restrictions have multiplied worldwide. These include wheat exports from India and palm oil from Indonesia. While in the short term this might seem like the right choice to protect its own citizens, in the long term it is all of humanity that will suffer. This short-sighted strategy only encourages speculation. Global trade is an essential component of food security, and imposing limits kicks off an inflationary spiral. What can be done then is cooperating. The best tool to combat this protectionist explosion is information and transparency about the real-world market situation. Famines are rarely caused by a shortage of food, but by the inability to get it where needed. Lauer argues in conclusion. The next editorial was published in the Belgian newspaper Le Libre. Columnist Christophe Lamfalusi believes that Putin is using wheat as a weapon. Together, Russia and Ukraine export almost a third of all of the world's wheat. However, Russia not only blocks Ukrainian ports, but also imposes restrictions on its own exports of wheat and fertilizer, which are not covered by international sanctions, making the farmer situation even worse. Wheat is a staple food, in particular, according to the United Nations, in some 50 countries, which are heavily dependent on Ukrainian and Russian wheat, especially in Africa and the Middle East. 
already impoverished countries now risk famine, political destabilization, and mass emigration. Russia is not the source of all ills on the planet, but these measures risk triggering a dangerous spiral that will overwhelm people miles away from Russia, Ukraine, and Western countries. To avoid this, the political will of Western capitals and Moscow is needed. Ending on a skeptical note, the journalist writes that, however, this supposes that the Russian president does not impose his logic of war on the rest of the world. For the final opinion piece on the topic of a potential food shortage, we move back to Italy reading La Repubblica. According to the journalist Marta Dassu, Moscow's naval blockade in the Black Sea is the latest form of geopolitical clash that not only affects the fate of Ukraine, but also concerns the food security of Mediterranean and North African countries. Along with the import restrictions put in place by India, the World Food Programme warns that a global emergency is brewing. Is international intervention conceivable? The journalist asks. The only plausible type of intervention, it seems, would be the opening of a naval corridor, but this would require a request for intervention from Kiev. Turkey's consent is needed, and finally a coalition of countries willing to implement it. For their part, however, the Russians are blocking the port as retaliation for sanctions imposed by the West. Moscow will have to decide how to respond, balancing the global hunger emergency with its own war aims in Ukraine, argues Dasu, who ends with the following words. By blocking that port, Russia also risks losing itself and what little is left of its image on the world stage. Following this in-depth coverage related to the Russian-Ukrainian conflict and its consequences, in the third collection of editorials, we look back some reactions to the Australian general elections held last Saturday. Incumbent Prime Minister Scott Morrison, leader of the centre-right Liberal Party of Australia, was defeated by his main challenger, Anthony Albanese, leader of the centre-left Australian Labour Party, won the electoral contest. The first commentary on the issue comes from German newspaper Der Spiegel. For the author Christian Stocker, professor of cognitive psychology at the University of Hamburg for Applied Sciences, the psychological effect due to climate change would be the reason for the defeat of now former Prime Minister Morrison. Australia is one of the countries that is experiencing firsthand some of the worst consequences of climate change. For years, Stocker points out, Australians voted for those who deny the effects that CO2 emissions have on the climate. Between 2019 and 2020, gigantic wildfires ravaged vast areas of the country, killing 34 people and billions of animals. Even people who lived in large cities far from the fires suffered for months because of the smoky air, the professor explains. First, people endured months of toxic smoke, then floods with the inevitable mold, and at the same time, months without sunshine, the columnist writes, quoting scientist Tim Flannery. This series of increasingly frequent and increasingly extreme events has then shifted public opinion away from the Liberal Party, which has always been against the ecological transition. As extreme events around the world related to climate change worsen, the article ends, citizens will realize 
that politicians and businessmen are handing them a world in which climate change will weigh on their lives. A second reaction to the Australian vote can be read in the British newspaper The Guardian. For journalist Gabby Hinsliff, Morrison's defeat in Australia could start a domino effect that will favour progressives in the UK and the rest of the world. Morrison's defeat was due to his mismanagement of several recent crises, a bungled response to COVID, failure to deal with the ensuing economic crisis, accusations to his party colleagues of sexual harassment and fires and floods caused by climate change. What makes this otherwise faraway election feel closer to home is that the Australian right's thinking remains core to Boris Johnson's project, Hinsliff writes. First Trump, then Le Pen, now Morrison. This domino reversal of a right-wing government and parties creates the sense of momentum that British progressives lacked, the columnist argues. According to the article, what all of these three leaders share is proposing simple answers to complex problems. While these are initially appealing, they prove ineffective in the long run. Perhaps the most useful lesson to take from Australia is that bad politics can still melt on contact with inconvenient truths, Hinsliff concludes. The Australian election result has also been followed from across the ocean. So let's go to the American newspaper, The Wall Street Journal, for the last commentary on the subject. For the newspaper's editorial board, the defeat is not only due to the shortcomings of the previous government, but also to its inability to distinguish itself radically from its opponents. Three terms of conservative government achieved little. The only noteworthy aspect was not being Labour, the article reads, quoting Australian journalist Greg Sheridan. Nothing substantive was done in the field of defence. Politics became a contest of near-identical, technocratic alternatives, the article explains. For the Wall Street Journal, however, the election of Labour's Albanese is good news for the US. Indeed, Albanese wants to strengthen international security relations between Canberra and Washington, particularly in an anti-Chinese perspective. China is looking for new allies in the seas northeast of Australia, with the Asian superpower seeking to expand its influence. No doubt Beijing will test Mr. Albanese early in his tenure, writes the journalist, who end the article by hoping that the new prime minister will hold up under the pressure. We are at the end of our 12th episode of the podcast, The Window on the World. Before saying goodbye, we would like to remind you that a European Council Summit will take place next Monday and Tuesday, but we'll update you on that next week. Research and writing for this episode was done by Daniel Vutza, and behind the mic, it's me, your host, Gail Rago. I hope you enjoyed this special episode, and until next time, take care and goodbye. <laughs>